Today we're dipping our toes into water economics and acknowledging that the best things in life can be free or available, but not both. That is telekinetic. Hello, I am Mitch. You are here, and Dr. David Zetland is in Amsterdam, where, among other pursuits, he teaches economics at Leiden University College. He has a true passion for helping the public understand water markets, and I'm excited to have him on the show to teach us a little bit about how civilization's water gets to its destination and why that desperately needs to change. So please put your virtual hands together for Dr. David Zetland. David, hello. Hey. Let's uh let's have a casual conversation about the world's most precious resource. Why don't we? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I would assume for most folks the reason for having you on is pretty obvious, but I was part motivated by uh, your appearance on the AgRed podcast where you talked about water and water economics. And, you know, what's so interesting in the context of our conversation here is that, I mean, more than any other resource, I would assume, it's the reason that people are willing to move their bodies, their families, their villages to reach it and access it. And yet we've made so much quote unquote progress that I could be, you know, on the 30th floor of a hotel in the desert and expect that a hundred gallons of it are going to be available to me at any time and have no appreciation for any complexity that, that might, that might cause a problem. <laughs> so I think in that sense, even though the general history of water may seem obvious to people, I think it's worth kind of fast forwarding through that history of water access and delivery. Just so we have a, a baseline to, to start talking about some of the some of the more complicated topics here that you're going to, that you're going to touch on. Yeah, absolutely. A very good point. And I think that the ease with which we get access to clean, cheap water in, in some of the rich parts of the world uh, leads us to kind of forget how incredibly valuable this is and, and the decades and centuries of work that has gone before it. And so, yeah, take it for granted. And next thing you know, you're not going to have it. So that's a, mm -hmm. a real thing to worry about. I mean, I'll make a, a comment at the head about water scarcity and, and the economics of water. And that is that the economics of water were not relevant for most of human history. And they've only become relevant as water has become actually scarce. The same way as surprisingly, there's actually uh, an economics of sand. Sand used to be so pl plentiful that we used to say all the grains of sand in the galaxy as, a, as an example of infinity. But now there are sand shortages in the world. So Water economics is a, is, a, is a new thing since, uh, and it depends on where you go, but it's, it's, it's rising around the world. But before water became so scarce, we had to worry mostly about, could we get water to where we wanted it? And let's go back into kind of the pre-written history of food and agriculture and irrigation. After hunter-gatherers, uh, who basically took what was available, and what was available depended on whatever the water, the rainfall pattern was, precipitation, snow, and so on, the rise of, of agriculture worked on several different dynamics. Uh, one was uh, different margins. One was uh, seeds and refining seeds into more productive uh, races of plants. 
And then there was also uh, use of different machines and techniques for uh, working land. And then came uh, putting water where you want it, when you want it, basically what we call irrigation today. And so the reason you can, you can see this today with agriculture around the world, they have rain-fed agriculture. Uh, and that basically means we hope it rain. We're going to plant some seeds. We hope it rains. And right. when it rains in the right place at the right time, we will get a crop. And if it doesn't, we are in trouble. Uh, and irrigation means you, you have you know, water on demand, essentially. And this was uh, fairly well understood back in, like I said, the distant past uh, in, in the breadbasket of the world uh, of Ur and Sumeria, these old you know, empires that we have no history, uh, no, no detailed records of. But what we do see from that past, besides that those empires came from that area, what we do see is that the, the soil would tend to salt up. And that is because when you're putting water on soil, it's going to bring some salt with it, and that salt will accumulate. And as, uh, as everybody who read Roman poetry knows, uh, if you want to destroy your enemies forever, you salt their earth. Salting someone's earth basically means to destroy the fertility of that land for a long time, hundreds, maybe thousands of years. Mm. And that is why many parts of the Middle East today are desert or barren. Uh, and that's because the irrigated agriculture more or less worked until it stopped working. Mm. And so that has been uh, an ongoing issue everywhere on the planet still worry about things like salt. Going back in the history of urbanization and drinking water, when it came to cities uh, and urbanization and concentrations of people, quickly you had problems of can we get enough water for people to drink and use? Uh, and, and, and bathing, of course, was mostly optional back in those days. But then worse, and the much bigger problem is how do you get rid of the human waste? How do you get rid of the sewage? Um, and how do you get rid of basically what they call night soil as a euphemism for, for shit? Um, but as the scale of the city grows, too many people show up, the, 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 this waste becomes out of control. And then you start essentially poisoning the well as soon as sewage and, and, and all that started to, to mix with that groundwater, you would get problems such as the very famous problem of cholera, uh, which resulted in these epidemics in, in cities. And, and this is why, this is the important element, the life expectancy in cities was worse than in countryside for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. So then we spent a huge amount of time trying to figure out how to separate the waste from the drinking water uh, and so on and so forth. And those efforts took place in the, in the, uh, mostly in the 19th century in the richer parts of the world. They're still not even having, they have not taken place in poorer parts of the world. An irrigation situation has uh, advanced in leaps and bounds, again, with technology in, the, in the, mostly the 20th century, but also the 19th century. And now that has created a problem, not, for example, of salting the soils, but of using more water than is actually available and causing long-term water shortages. Mm. So that's kind of where we get up to, to today. Yeah. And, you know, stormwater and, and gray and black waters is so interesting to me because it's, I guess it's kind of like, depending on who you talk to, we've made a ton of progress or we've made none because <laughs> we still kind of just are like, um, go that way, bad water. We'll deal right. with it later. <laughs> we will deal with it later. Just not in the way that we expect to apparently, <laughs> but, um, right. well, awesome. Thank you. Thank you for that kind of a uh, quick overview of wh where humanity's gone with its most precious resource. So as we talk about that, managing and manipulating that water and, and starting to have more control over it, at least, we, you know, in the short term, believing we have control over it, talk to me a little bit about the more advanced concept of water economics and, and water markets, which I know is, you know, you've written a book about it and 
you know, I think it's, it's just crucial for folks to have an understanding of what's going on with the water that ends up at their house or ends up on a farm or ends up uh, being used in, in industrial uh, applications and all the economics that, that go around that. Yeah, I'll bring black water back into this, uh, okay. so you'll be very uh, pleased, I'm sure. <laughs> so um, the the core of water economics that I talk about is via a framing of water in different uses. The reason I, I do this is because uh, it helps to understand how complicated water is and also to try and pull apart those complications so that you don't just throw up your hands and say, ah, it's impossible, right? The challenge for some people, when, they, when you hear about something like, for example, putting a price on water, they mix that up with something that they think should not be priced in water. Um, and you're saying, no, 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 I want to price the thing that should be priced. And the thing that you're worried about should not be priced. That's a separate question. And prices in, on water are one dimension of, of the economics of water. But a more basic dimension, which is much more important, is to say, what kind of water are we actually dealing with here? Yeah. This, this two by two kind of breaks this down in, in, in the following ways. One of them is to think, can we keep someone from using this water or not, or enjoying this water or benefiting from this water or not? Uh, that's what we call exclusion. The other one is if I use this water, can you use it also, or can you not, right? And that's subtraction. If it's excludable, and that means a bottle of water, that means water uh, that is controlled by a water meter to your house, right? Or it means water, a, a market for water, like farmers that have uh, uh, rights to water, a, a quantified volume of water, all of those are considered kind of excludable. And that means that you can use basic economic ideas, you can use prices, you can use trading and so on. Right. But there's a whole bunch of water that we can't exclude. Uh, the most crazy version is a rainbow. A rainbow is made by the sun shining through water vapor in the sky. Everybody can see it, everybody can enjoy it, nobody can control it, it's there, it's, it's non-excludable. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also called a public good because of this definition. And I'll, I'll get into this public versus private kind of vocabulary problem in a second. So the public good of water is something like a rainbow, but also a lake or the ocean or a river. That kind of water tends to be associated with uh, ecosystems. And uh, it's extremely important that we have the environment and ecosystems because if we didn't, we'd literally be dead. So the, the, that non-excludable water cannot be managed in markets. It must be managed through some kind of non-economic, political, or community-based system. This is really tricky because people have to be nice to each other. They have to talk about difficult topics. Are we going to uh, leave that wetland? Or are we going to drain that swamp? Like They're both pointing at the exact same patch of land, mm -hmm. but for some people, a wetland is a resource, and it's beautiful, and it's nature, and other people, it's a swamp. It should be paved over and turned into a parking lot for a, a much more useful thing like a store. So that discussion is a political discussion. What happens when a bunch of farmers, for example, are, are overlaying an aquifer and they're all using the water from that aquifer, but they do not have rights to that water. There's no market for that water. And they have to agree or disagree on how to manage that water. And because it's essentially non-excludable, anybody can use it. There's a real challenge of those farmers finding ways to work with each other. Now, in some cases, they do find ways to work with each other and that's amazing. And they could be very sustainable for a long amount of time. And other times they don't. And then you have a kind of a tragedy, the common situation where that water will be uh, overused and then every farmer is worse off. Right. Right. Uh, and this is the work that's associated with Eleanor Ostrom, who's someone I, I admire very much. Okay. And so she talked about managing those commons in a way that is sustainable. Now, when we go back to the economics of water, we talk about using prices and so on. If you say, I'm going to put a price on water, someone will say, oh, but if you put a price on water, 
then it will cost more than nothing and I need water to live and it's my human right to live. And so you put a price on water, it's a violation of my human rights. That's logically consistent, but it's a bit troublesome because um, the person who's saying that is traditionally mixing up uh, the water that you need to, to live, to drink, for example, which might be two or three liters of water, four liters of water per day, around a gallon. But they're also saying you can't charge me for water for uh, taking a shower or for watering my lawn or even worse, watering my driveway, which is a real habit in some parts, <laughs> parts of the world. And so they, they kind of, what you need to do is say, using this kind of two by two setup is you need to say, let's use the right tool for the right task. If we have the environment or if we have a groundwater aquifer, we need to have a political discussion. If we have urban water or we have markets for water, we need to have an economics discussion. And then we need to use the right tools for the right task. And so that's kind of my, my big caveat on how, the, how to water the political economy. So there's politics in there. The political economy of water should be discussed. Mm. Yeah. You know, the tragedy of the commons comes up almost every uh, episode here. <laughs> <laughs> you can rename your podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, or my life. <laughs> and, you know, it makes sense, right? But there is that, that distance. And we just talked about this um, when talking about uh, police reform in, in a previous episode, but we talked about, you know, distancing oneself from the transaction with another entity, right? Or, or even in this case with the source of the, of the resource itself, right? From, you know, the river or the spring. Mm -hmm. That the more you distance yourself from that transaction, the easier it is, you know, not even intentionally, right? But the easier it is to just do something that is self-serving, something that's not to the mutual benefit of everyone participating in the relationship. And it's understandable, but it's, uh, it's still a problem that has to be solved. And you, and you can't say, well, it's not my issue to deal with. So to that end, when we're talking about pricing water and, and delivering water to, to folks who have expectations of it, I know you mentioned in your book, the topic of induced demand, mm -hmm. which I mean, transportation, healthcare, there's a bunch of industries, right? Where that's a known thing. Mm -hmm. And it's this, well, I guess we call it a phenomenon, but we know it's going to happen every time. <laughs> so it's not really a phenomenon, I guess, but it's you know, more so a curiosity of how the human mind works or how culture works, I guess, that mm -hmm. you make the mistake of thinking that you're meeting demand where, and in fact, you know, what you're actually doing is encouraging demand. So the, the, the thing that, that's kind of handy, and I, I, I want to also kind of comment on what you said about uh, the, these, these tragedies of the commons. Human existence for many, many millennia has been, you know, take those resources, use those resources, and then throw away whatever you don't want, a once-through system, right? Uh, or a, um, a, a through system. And then we start to understand that maybe our resources are and somehow limited or that our garbage will become uh, our problem tomorrow. Uh, we started to think about a closed-loop system, right? Or what's called Spaceship Earth since around 1970, uh, the Spaceship Earth model. So the more you actually take seriously your environment and the, the more you live in that environment, the more circular you get in terms of the way you think of inputs and outputs. And uh, people in, in most uh, rich societies have not thought about that uh, because um, they've been raised, besides even moving around, they've been raised with economies that are, that are very efficient at bringing things from one place to another and not considering what happens with the waste. And, and as you said, you know, waste is something to get rid of. Stormwater, get rid of it, right? Garbage, get rid of it, burn it, bury it, throw it in the ocean, right? So, um, but then you realize that that, that is a problem. So uh, that's one thing that we're, we're starting to see uh, the consequences now in the Anthropocene with climate change and all kinds of stuff. But going back to induced demand, which is, I mean, one of the examples that I think is kind of crazy is the water sector has set expectations sometimes in ways that do not match reality. And the, my, the, the craziest example, which is so 
obvious when you see it, are the palm trees in Southern California, uh, which are not native to Southern California, but palm trees were historically an image that was associated with oases. Uh, you would see palm trees in the desert. The palm trees meant there was water. That meant that that part of the desert was a way more interesting part of the desert than all the part with the sand. Uh, and when they wanted to get people to move to sunny Southern California, where there really was no water, they started planting palm trees here and there. And these are, are not from the region. And people would see these postcards with palm trees and sunshine and think, I'm going to paradise. There's a lot of water there, but it's super bright and warm because the water is brought from somewhere else. And the original sin of Southern California is that almost all of its water is imported from other places that right. suffered the consequences. Right. The old Eric the Red move with uh, Greenland, huh? Just yeah. <laughs> throwing the palm trees exactly. and say, yeah, look at, look at this. Yeah. Exactly. Hey, come to this place called Greenland. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That's cool. I, uh, yeah, I knew that the trees were not native, but it, that's always a good reminder. And you see this all the time with real estate developers, right? They will, they will build uh, large groups of housing. They'll put, you know, big green lawns. They'll roll the grass into the lawn that's been grown somewhere else. Mm -hmm. They'll put in irrigation infrastructure. But man, if you turn off those taps, that's all going to be crisp because there's no precipitation to keep that uh, green. And they put in swimming pools and all kinds of stuff. I mean, Vegas is one of the most funny parts of the, of the planet because you fly over Vegas uh, back when that was a thing and you would just see pool after pool after pool after pool. And, and that was a sign of like abundant water. And the water authorities in Las Vegas have really encouraged that because they have worked much more to increase the sales of homes than to uh, worry about the sustainability of water supply to people that already live there. It's a pretty, it's a pretty big middle finger to the environment <laughs> when you yeah. fly over Vegas and look at that, or even when you're walking around, you see that, you know, the fountains of Bellagio and things of that nature is, is kind of yeah. just like. Or it's a, it's a middle finger to our future selves, right? You're, you're really putting yeah. yourself yeah. at risk. Yeah. So, and that kind of gets into the talk about the pricing of water as, you know, one of the core issues that we have here in water conservation and, um, and recharging and everything. So uh, I'd love for you to talk about water pricing or the lack thereof, I suppose. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've heard of this topic. So let me try, let me try <laughs> and say a few things. Actually, let me, let me back up and talk about how water pricing evolved because that's kind of handy. First of all, uh, water was not usually delivered it used, uh, by any kind of utility, a water utility. People would just figure out how to get their own water. Then uh, in the 19th century, uh, they started to get very serious about having water supply systems mostly because uh, they were concerned about the hygiene problem of people drinking dirty water, mm. like I said, that had cholera in it. So the government got involved. It used to be, do what you want. You know, if you want to have a cheese sandwich, go ahead. If you want to have clean water, go ahead. Or you want to have beer instead, right? Go ahead. But as it became a public health problem, government started getting involved and they said, we need to have water supply systems that are going to bring clean water that will not kill people to somewhere near their house, basically. Um, and the Romans did this uh, long, long ago with the fountains, the aqueducts, right? And that was uh, most of that water was used for drinking. So 2000 years ago, the Romans figured it out. Everybody else caught up in the 1800s. Now, once you get uh, the system set up, oh, first thing is it's super expensive to build these systems. It's Honestly, like yeah. it's the most expensive infrastructure possible, more than roads, more than electricity, more than anything you can think of. So that means is it takes a long time to get that money back. And that means that if you're a business, good luck. And also on the other side of that, you're a monopoly. So you can overcharge everybody. So mm. immediately you come to this crazy problem of, I'm not going to invest here if I have to wait 50 years to get my money back. And no one's going to buy from me if I'm going to screw them over by raising my price super high. So the, the concept of water, regulating the price of water came in very quickly. 
Um, and uh, so that's, that's, that's going to be an important part. So we've got an expensive system. We've got a regulator. We've got to pay back these fixed costs, which are the, the huge uh, infrastructure costs. The water itself, and this is true almost always around the world right now, the water itself is free. So what you're paying for is the delivery. Mm. And that's been true for, for centuries. Uh, there's no scarcity price for the water. The price of the water itself is just free. If you can get it, you get it. And that's because of the way the laws are written and also custom. Now, you have this system that needs to be paid for. Uh, when they figured out it's a good idea to not have cholera, they used taxes. They did not charge the users of water for the water, right? So they used tax money. It was a subsidy from either people that paid taxes, which started to be rich people, or it was a subsidy from the government, from, from some other source. And that would pay to help the system. And then they would try and recover money from the users with a monthly charge, something like that. And, and the monthly charge didn't depend on how much water you use because meters were not being used. Then they started to use meters as a way of doing two things. One is to reduce the water consumed. So that's like this water conservation impulse, right? The same way as if you went to the gas station and they said, yeah, pump as much gas as you want, no big deal, uh, see you later, right? It's like, or, or pay even, even worse, pay $2 for on, as much as you want, all you can eat, gasoline. Well, that would not last long, right? So they started charging on the volume of water you used to get people to consume less, you know, repair those leaks, don't leave the the shower running while you do your dishes or whatever. Uh, and also they wanted to allocate the cost of the system to people that use the system more compared to people that use the system less. So that was the idea of water pricing. Now the pricing, remember, is not the water, it's the service. Right. So the water is still free. In most parts of the world, the pricing is still extremely inadequate to either pay for those system fixed costs and maintenance and renewal, which is why we have a lot of systems that are breaking down and leaking or they don't even reach parts of the city or area that they should, right? And because the water itself is not priced, there's no scarcity signal, but San Francisco water prices are super high because their system is super expensive. And so people use a lot less water in San Francisco. People use in Las Vegas, guess what? A lot more water because the price per unit is so cheap mm. and it, because it doesn't have the scarcity price involved. And this right. is, in my opinion, the only commodity on the planet that we don't actually charge a price for the actual commodity. Yeah. And because water is not priced to re reflection to a scarcity, we have constant problems with too much demand and not enough supply. <laughs> yeah. It's so comical to think about that, that, that it's free and that you only pay for the delivery. And then, and then, yeah, that you have to somehow recoup the costs and, the, and then, uh, you know, progressively price the costs uh, of usage somehow. It, it just sounds so unmanageable to do it that way. And I can appreciate the complexity of having to work through that, especially if you've already built infrastructure, you know, 200 years ago. And, and now you're just, you know, the mayor who walked into that and has to deal with it. But, you know, it reminds me, again, I always kind of bring callbacks to transportation here, but mm -hmm. the New York subway is always to me a funny example because I think it was JP Morgan or, or someone else who, who just had an, an assumption, one of the financiers of the New York City subway early on, mm -hmm. just had this notion that, you know, the economy of the U.S. was going to go one way. And so they priced the fares at like a hard, non-negotiable five cents forever kind of thing. Because I guess ah. for some reason they thought the, the economy was going to go one direction. They did that in 1904. And mm -hmm. then it went the other way. And no politician could get the price increased on that fare for 44 years. So like all the things that happened in, in America's economy from 1904 to 1948 the price to ride the New York city subway was five cents that entire right. time. And right. that's, and that is like, to your point, the tragedy of trying to actually hold communities 
and and suppliers of water and, and everyone involved in this in the system responsible for it is once you screw it up it gets harder and harder to step in and say okay we've got to correct it now and then sometimes it gets so <laughs> this is the same thing with gas tax too right sometimes mm-hmm. yeah and that it's just like well i'm not going to be the guy to come in and say you guys are underpaying by 400 percent. that's preposterous you know that should have been the last guy when it was at 380 <laughs> percent. yeah no that's i mean i use that i use the u.s gas tax all the time as an example of uh, a policy that has been frozen and even worse as as you well know uh because the gas tax is it has not been moved i think since 1994 and there's money coming out of the general budget to pay for the highway funds so, you know, drivers are being subsidized by general taxes, you know, even though this tax exists. And uh, and then even more strange is that the gas tax is a, a dead simple way of having a, a shadow carbon tax on using gasoline. And, you know, there's all these wars back and forth, back and forth. In the United States, like, oh, it's impossible. Our standard of living will drop into the toilet. But you go to Canada, not that bad. You come to the Netherlands where uh, I think it's um, eight U.S. a gallon. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the, the United States, like, forget the riots in the Capitol in January, the entire country would be in flames if the price of gasoline went to eight dollars yeah. a gallon. But on the other hand, in, in Europe, uh, nothing's there's no problem. Everything's fine. Yeah. And it's you know, and it's just so easy to push on that that sensitive area of not being comfortable with change. Right. And just saying like, well, listen, if, if this happens, there's going to be a lot of change. And it's like, well, okay. I mean, you know, change, change happens. And then you get a new reality and you, you know, humans are great at adapting to the situation they're in. They're, they're just horrible at being comfortable with it happening. <laughs> you know, that the change of it actually happening. Yeah. And I think, I think that the, the challenge really is if politicians get involved, uh, they will pander as much as it will see, uh, give them votes. Right. So because politics is so important in water, we see a lot of big mistakes and big problems. We don't see the same politics, for example, with a lot of technology, phones, computers, uh, things like that. They work in markets, people, they buy them, they sell them, they, they get good uh, monthly service or they don't, but they switch back and forth, right? And politicians kind of keep their hands off. But politicians, why, by keeping the price on water below many, many measures of, of sustainability, uh, you know, recovering the system costs, pricing scarcity, by politicians keeping that price low, they're very popular on paper. People say, thank you for the water being so cheap, but then the water isn't even there. It's just gone. Right. There's, there's no service. Right. Um, and the poorest parts of the world, the poor people are the ones that suffer the most because rich people can go get water elsewhere the way poor people cannot afford to. Exactly, yeah. Okay, I want to give you my hot take here on the heels of what we've been discussing. And that, um, just as a reminder, that's a straw man argument, uh, in this case, very much straw man. <laughs> That, uh, that I offer up for, for your rebuttal as an expert on the, on the topic. So let's see. Uh, and this may be true for other countries, but I'm not going to speak on their behalf. Um, but my hot take is that America, I feel maybe needs to embrace what I might call minimum viable catastrophes if it's going to take water conservation seriously. And I say that because, I mean, you know, the past four or five years have been um, pretty, pretty incredible from an embarrassment standpoint as an American. But, you know, even beyond that, we're just so disconnected from the accountability to the, to water as a resource and the scarcity of it and the need to conserve it that I don't know that I believe that education and incentives can actually outperform the lessons of tangible on the ground, local suffering. And Mm -hmm. so I guess I'm curious about the idea that like, 
is there any validity to the, to the notion that we could identify, I mean, I don't even know if we can actually reliably do this, but if we could identify catastrophes, water-based catastrophes or climate-based that have the most short-term impact on the country, but the least long-term impact, and then mm -hmm. basically, I guess you might call this passive terrorism, <laughs> but like, but basically make sure those happen so that we suffer enough to actually acknowledge what our future state could be if we don't change directions. Yeah, this, this is, I mean, there's, we can go through several examples here, but, but that's, it's a really good topic. So I think the challenge um, with these scenarios, let's look at, you know, um, uh, New Orleans and, and Flint, uh, not New Orleans not, and Flint, New Orleans and uh, Katrina, for example, the Gulf Coast, as you just mm -hmm. mentioned, right? We've got national flood insurance, which is another interesting example, and it'll be more and more in the news. Um, you've got Flint, Michigan, right? Now, I think that one of the bigger challenges is that, uh, again, politicians, and I, I, my, my level of disrespect for politicians continues to fall, let's say it that way. And that is that politicians will often come in and promise something. And then uh, the people that are getting these promises, that leaves them uh, infantilized, right? They are, they are just waiting for someone to take care of them. Mm -hmm. And if you go to some of the poorest parts of the world, uh, those people don't have any outside protectors, those, but they will take care of themselves. And guess what? They'll have something like sustainable water management, sustainable flood control, because they know if it's not uh, us, it's it's nobody. So I think there's a real interesting question here. Now, when Katrina hit New Orleans, uh, after New Orleans was told for decades that the Army Corps of Engineers programs were going to protect New Orleans, and that all failed, New Orleans got flooded, um, and the Army Corps, you know, they had to eat a, a bit of humble pie. But uh, politicians showed up quickly with the whole build it back stronger mentality. And, and even worse, they, they put that money into uh, in place work instead of encouraging people to move away from New Orleans or move away from those right, neighborhoods, right. which are at, at risk of flooding. And so when the government did show up, it kind of made it harder to change, to adopt than if the government had never been there at all. Mm. Um, and, and second, when, when a flood occurs or a disaster occurs, and then the government shows up and bails you out, you're just gonna sit there and say, well, if there's something goes wrong, I'll just wait for the helicopters. I'll wait for the, the Mounties to come and get me. Like this, this is what my taxes pay for. So there right, you go, it right. And, and what your, your taxes could pay for is, is prevention of that flood in the first place, right? Yeah. It, it was quite a funny moment in my, in my past because when I first came to the Netherlands, I was having a coffee with a, a Dutch engineer who told me about how he had just presented this, this entire plan for protecting New York City from uh, storm surges mm. due to a hurricane. Uh, this is in 2011. And, <laughs> uh, and he had a whole plan and he said the city of New York was like really not happy about it because it's gonna cost, I think, four to $8 billion, something like this. I mean, that's a lot of money, so, yeah. right? But then I think Sandy hit the next year, mm. I'm not quite sure, and did something like 30 billion in damage. I don't even know what the number right. was. It was a lot, it was a lot. Yeah. And that's just New York City, also New Jersey, all these other places. And now, oh, New York is so interested in building the seawall, right? Um, and that seawall, by the way, will protect Manhattan, but it will not protect the lower lying poorer areas. So again, you know, was that, what does Bernie Sanders say? It's, it's, it's subsidies for the rich and, and hard-nosed capitalism for the poor. Uh, so so these, these political involvements are you know, short-sighted, budgetarily a disaster in terms of cost benefits, um, but people will take them rather than taking their own responsibility. And, and and it's really tough when your neighbor has their hand out and getting a subsidy for you to say, yeah, I'll do that also, right? Yeah. But what you really need is, is for communities to take charge of their own futures 
and, um, and, and the politicians in those communities to take charge of their own futures and really not rely on all of that outside uh, subsidy and even worse, those outside policies that lead them down the primrose path to more or less a disaster. Yeah. And, there's, and there's so many ways we can go with that, but that's, that's just, I think, a, a big deal. Okay. Well, ironically, the, the, the thing that happened with also with Katrina is that the Dutch looked at Katrina and they said, oh, we have to get our act together. <laughs> so the Dutch made a hundred year plan to spend a hundred billion euros, uh, which <laughs> roughly a hundred billion dollars to, to defend themselves from rising sea level, right? Yeah. Whereas in the United States, and this is 20, 2005, the United States, they, they finally got their act together in terms of national flood insurance. And they, they, they raised the price of flood insurance to actually reflect real risks. And that worked for about three months before members of Congress started getting complaints from, from a constituent saying, mm. why is my, water, my flood insurance bill going so high? And, and that was not, uh, and, and then it got reversed. The whole flood insurance reform got reversed, which meant that a whole bunch of people that are really in the, in the path of the next flood, you know, Florida is the first, going to be the first to go. Houston keeps getting whacked by these 500 year storms uh, every three years. So this is going to be extremely expensive for everybody else. This is the problem. If you're yeah. in a, a safe community and you're paying federal taxes, your money is going to pay for other people's ongoing unsustainable lifestyle that their local politicians have brought to them. And it's, it's just a, a terrible idea. It's a huge waste of money. Yeah. And uh, so in that sense, I think that these, these minimum viable catastrophes is, is that they, they don't scale from the local level to the national level appropriately. Yeah. Right, because people say, "Oh, I hope I get bailed out by FEMA when we have a problem," and that's just not the way to look at it. So, what I would think the government should do, in in, in its infinite wisdom, is require that every community have a more or less long term plan for dealing with water scarcity, uh, natural disasters, etc., in place. And if you don't have that in place, and you're not actually spending local money on that plan, then you don't get any subsidies for those yeah. storms. Right? That's tough love, and that's unlikely to happen. But I would I would go that way if yeah. I could. Well, it's, you know, it's so interesting to hear that about, you know, the Dutch's reaction to something happening in a place that isn't their own country and, and doing what I would argue is the thing that makes humans more advanced than other animals, which is to say like, we can take lessons and apply them to other realms. We don't, we don't have to learn them directly. We can have information that is gathered and, and learned, passed down and passed across our entire species without us having to actually deal with the, the hard lesson of it ourselves. And I feel like a lot of what happens in America is we do the opposite, where we say like, okay, well, we learned this lesson 17 times already in 17 other cities, but you know, Cincinnati, it's, it's not Pittsburgh. I mean, come on. The, the Dutch, uh, interestingly, you know, the Netherlands, Zeeland is the south and it's called Zeeland, which the word Zee is the same as sea, right? It's literally waterland. And, and they get paid a whole bunch of money from other parts of the country because the Dutch still have at least some minimum standard of solidarity where they're going to work together to, to ensure the flood defenses. You know, you've done us a solid here by uh, putting out a book that is uh, in at least one medium free, uh, which is great. I'm about a third of the way through it. It's an easy read. I'm already doing your pitch for you, but um, <laughs> keep, keep going. It. Yeah, it's, it's, it reads 100 pages. It's about water scarcity and, you know, what, you know, the problems and solutions to it. That book plus the book that came before it, they're both free to download in PDF form. So The End of Abundance, I wrote in 2011. And uh, Living with Water Scarcity, the one you were just talking about, I wrote in 2014. And I made it free because I think, uh, you know, the financial gain for me selling this book is, is kind of garbage. So compared to me wanting people to have access to this book. And the reason I think this book is, I recommend it to all the pe people all the time, uh, besides the, the low, low price, 
is that it gives you a kind of a nice overview of how the different issues relate to each other. Yeah. Like I said earlier, water is complicated. And if you, if you, you get into these conversations with a normal person and say, what about this? What about this? What about this? And so in the book, I tried to define it in a way that you can see, ah, these pieces all fit together, like, like literally like a puzzle. And now I know I'm talking about this piece, but not that piece. And that's what I wanted to do with that book. I, I really do uh, think it's, it's a great way for any lay person to, to have a clue about what's going on. Uh, and potentially, of course, the most important thing is to get involved in their local, the local management of their water resources. Yeah. Well, and what's the easiest place for them to grab that uh, these days? It's on my, off of my personal website, kysq.org. And it's a listing there forward slash LWWS living with water scarcity. Uh, and then they can see the, you can download the PDF for the English or the Spanish, which are well, which is well translated. Uh, or the Portuguese and the Farsi, which are semi-well translated uh, versions of the book. Those are all for free. Uh, or you can, if you really want to have paperback, you can pay all of $5 to uh, buy the paperback. Small, small price to pay for possibly saving your uh, entire existence. But, you know. Yeah, yeah. You got to prioritize. <laughs> exactly. Awesome. I mean, you know, this has been great, David. I, I knew it would be. Um, but I thank you for taking the time to school us on all this. And I hope we can do better. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks again to David for that flood of insight. Thanks to Ben Montgomery for the soundtrack. And thanks to you for listening, subscribing, and rating the podcast. Hot takes and hot guests are always welcome. Connect with me at Telekinetic Show on Twitter or telekineticshow.com. Take care. Thank you.